На трибунах олеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона Разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. After taking our own short international break last week, we're here reconvening to discuss all three of Russia's recent World Cup qualifying games, the first three of which under the new boss Valery Karpin. Then ahead of the return of the RPL this weekend, and after the deadline day yesterday, day before yesterday, this week, we'll summarise the entire window as a whole. To discuss that, I'm joined by David Sanson and Richard Pike. So we did get the three first games for Russia under Valery Karpin, and that was Russia nil, Croatia nil at Delusniki. Cyprus nil, Russia two at the at, at Nicosia in Cyprus, and Russia two, Malta nil at the Odklitia. Now I started. I watched the Russia Croatia game. Uh, it was to call it a tactical game, maybe a compliment. It was very boring. <laughs> in what is we've come to learn of late from various international football weekends, where it's very tentative and you can tell that there's quite a lot of players who don't necessarily train together all that much but the team selection some good some mixed uh Zaharian made his full debut for Russia in which he becomes the second youngest player to ever play for the Russian modern version of the national team I think he's what is it the fourth youngest for the Soviet period um behind Dakin Feyev in both um Guillaume started in goal, uh, in which was a little bit of a bizarre, for me anyway, choice. I think he's obviously ageing now, still mistake-prone, just as he was 10 years ago, or even longer maybe. And to call up five goalkeepers and be undecided, only to then play Guillaume in all three games, which we'll get into probably later of the other two games, is a little bit of a bizarre decision. But considering the breadth of quality that Croatia have, even though they are themselves going through what lots of people like to sort of cliche call a transitional period of international football. Um, obviously, lots of older players retiring after after relatively disappointing Euros and trying to bring through lots of younger players, very similar to Russia. Um, I thought overall it was a solid performance from Karpin's men and a very, very good point at home. But before we do move on, David, any any thoughts yourself on the on the Russia and Croatia game? Uh, yeah, I thought of all the you know I, I saw all three games and I thought it was Russia's best performance uh, of the three fixtures um, in you know eighty percent of the pitch. Uh, the only thing they didn't really do was was score, but um, you know they they limited Croatia to mainly just pop shots. Um, and, and played fairly well in general. Um, you know, he he started without a striker in that game, as I recall. Um, played the first half with uh, Yonov, Zaharian, and Miranchuk was predominantly the one who was playing as the false nine. Although they were those three were sort of uh, swapping around a fair bit. Um, and then at halftime, he brought a striker on. We were all thinking it'd be Smolov, but he brought on Zabolotny. Uh, which, you know, initially uh, everyone's reaction was a bit dreary, but he actually had an effective half, I thought, Zablotny. Um, I was defending him afterwards when people were criticising him. I thought he did everything he needed to. He was, he was winning headers. He was getting rushed up the field. Um, it was just chance creation in, in the final key moments where they were just slightly lacking. You know, there was there was nothing really being put on. There was a couple of points, I remember, where the ball was out on the right flank, and the cross should have come in because Zablotny was in there, but it just didn't. Uh, and that happened with Gear. Yeah, that happened on a couple of occasions when really, you know, it was when you've got him on the pitch, you should be trying to put him in the box. Um, but I, I thought it was a, a good performance, and it, you know, considering it was Carpin's first match, you know, he it was a, you know, a wild choice to not play a strike and go false nine. Um, I thought it was a, a decent start, and it, it gave me a bit of optimism. For the rest of his tenure, at least, um, whether that continued over the next two games, we'll get into. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And on Zaharian, I was actually, I've, I've criticised Carpen in a few times for his 
comments in press conferences and interviews since he's got the job. I believe that very much so that sometimes the the boss of an international team is almost a propaganda position, if that makes sense to the to the listeners. It's very I always get reminded and I use this example quite often of Chris Coleman's Wales side in twenty sixteen where he built it around a solid psychological base. And I was annoyed by his initial comments that the players and teams and positions aren't good enough because it's not like the RFU can go out and spend a lot of money to to placate a disgruntled manager. That's not how it works in international football. It's up to him and it's up to the the RFU and those in power to, to change things. But to be fair to him, after the game, um, after the, the Malta game, actually, it was... Um, Carpen was asked about Zaharian and he actually defended him saying like I think the question was posed to him uh, that he's inconsistent in his performances when he compared the Croatia to the, to the Malta game was it and he and he started again and he he basically just said like are you looking for this sort of game to game stability in someone who's essentially a boy who's only just turned 18 playing his first games for Russia and it it shows that Carpen to his credit is actually very good at working with younger players and does have a track record at Rostov of, and, and Spartak even, even though it wasn't the most highly successful spell, of bringing through a series of of younger players, if I remember correctly. I think it was Carpin who gave Zuba his debut with Spartak. Um, anyone listening, if I'm incorrect on that, just let me know on Twitter, at Russ Football News. But I was... I'm very easy to criticise, so I can only be have some due, due diligence and credit him for that comment regarding Zaharian because it's very clear that he is the one of the integral parts of the future of Russian football. But we did also travel to Cyprus. Uh, that was a 2-0 victory. Uh, Richard, you caught the Cyprus game. Were you? What did you think of the match in general? Yeah, I thought the Cyprus game, just quickly on the uh, Croatia game, yeah, I agree, it was just a tactical stalemate, wasn't it? Um, but, you know, Russia, I thought, played quite well. They nullified Croatia. And, yeah, I agree with both of you. I think that was a good point at home. Uh, the crucial thing then was, of course, to back it up. Um, and Russia went away to Cyprus and got um, got a decent 2-0 win. Um, I wouldn't say it was a spectacular performance from them. It was quite an efficient performance. Um, they got the job done. You know, At the end of the game, they were tallying up the shots. And uh, Cyprus actually had double the amount of shots that Russia had. But again, like in the Croatia game, and even more so in this game, actually, a lot of Cyprus's shots were mainly speculative efforts from long range or shots on target that, you know, Guillermo dealt with easily and comfortably. They were they were shots, a lot of them were pretty much straight at him. Didn't require a lot of movement or a spectacular save. It was mainly just routine goalkeeping saves. Um, I was a little bit disappointed in that selection for that game in goal. I thought, you know, OK, play Guillermo against Croatia, but then it would have been nice to see someone else get a chance in goal for the for the Cyprus game. Uh would have been nice to see perhaps maybe Dupin in goal, maybe Maximenko, but he, he stuck with Guillaume. Um, I'm like you, I, I still I don't think he should be in the Spawner squad. I'd rather go with a younger goalkeeper now personally, but it does look like Guillaume is going to be Carpine's number one, which we're going to have to accept, uh, even if we don't agree with it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's almost one of them games, Cyprus away, where you've just got to just get the points. I think, you know, Russia's should beat Cyprus and you know it's you know it's one of them games if they win 5-0 4-5-0 people will say well it's again they should win easily you know it's only Cyprus if they only win 1-0 then they'll get criticised so it's one of them games you just got to get out of the way and done and they got the 2-0 win um, again not the best performance in the world but it's three points away from home in a qualifying group um, and yeah, just just one of those situations where it was job done. Basically, I think Smolov got two assists in this game, so um, he's having a bit of a resurgence with his international career right now, which is which is good. So, so yeah, just just a um, a good a professional job done away from home. The Cyprus victory. Yeah, certainly, it was good to see Smolov play against Cyprus. Um, I do worry somewhat that he, he may not have been first choice. Obviously, after the Croatia Russia Croatia game. And I think a large reason of why, even though, like you said, David, 80% of the pitch, they were excellent. That 20%, not so much. They really missed that, that not necessarily target man, but a focal point up top. Someone, an experienced striker. And Smolov has 
to be fair, in the Cyprus and Malta games, yes, as Richard just said, against Minnows, but he's got what a goal and two assists, performed pretty well over the course of all of the games. I was, I must admit, I was surprised to not see him start against Croatia. I think he's been the outstanding Russian striker in the league so far this season, both in terms of goal scoring and particularly his performances. I think he's, he's a different. We mentioned this last year, but we. He, he plays differently the way he did across the door. He's, he's perhaps because of age. Um, he's lost a little bit of that sort of sharp turn of pace, but he was never particularly that fast anyway. But now, because he's obviously what thirty-one now, uh, and he plays in a different he plays in a different role for Lokomotiv. He's far more of a second striker. He's more creative and makes things happen. And you've really seen that in the Cyprus game when he got those two assists. I thought his link-up play with Rifat, uh, Rifat was excellent all the way through. And and Yurokin as well. Yurokin's, uh is is so weird. He's got an incredible goal-poaching ability. <laughs> I just... I, I always, like I said a couple of weeks ago, I'm always ever so slightly surprised by it. And I thought he was he was actually excellent in the, in the match against Cyprus. But, I mean... It's hard because you have to caveat it with minnows. But before we get on to the Russia-Malta match, all three of these games, in all three, uh, there was a different captain selected, of course, for the Croatia game. It was uh, Georgi Chikia. And then in Cyprus, it was uh, Dmitry Baranov. And then for the Malta game, it was Smolov himself. Now, Baranov started all three. Smolov, two of the three. And Zhikia, two of the three as well. But and they all played together at some point during the during the three games. But pre before the Russia game, before the first match, Georges Zhikia was uh, quoted as saying that they have not selected a captain, but rather a team of captains, and that they will, will all take up a leadership role. This is of course in lieu of Akinfeyev, the long term captain's retirement from national football. And then Zuba's non-selection. David, I just wondered, what's your thoughts on this? Would you prefer them to have one outstanding leader, a, a one one person who is the captain of the team, or is it maybe a good way to get around potentially Carpen not knowing his best eleven yet? Um, I mean, personally, I don't think the captain plays a hugely important role. Um, you know, you have everyone has team leaders deciding whether someone's the captain or not. Um, you know, it's more of a ceremonial thing, it feels like, in the modern day. Um, you know, I think when, when captains first were around, it was, you just make your best player the captain. But, so, for me, it's, I don't think it's him trying to cop out, you know, get out of doing something. I think, I think it's a nice... I think it's a nice move. It gives everyone the chance. You know, Russia's a national team where, you know, there's a bunch of players there who are captains for their club sides. You know, these are all guys who are, quote-unquote, leaders at club level. Um, and then having to make make them all not be captain for international duty and, you know, bow down to another. Um, just, you know, it's a little bit odd. I, I quite like the... The rotation of the captain, so I think it's a, a nice idea. It's different. You don't you don't see many many clubs or countries doing it. Um, yeah, I I don't think ultimately it makes too much difference on the pitch, though. I think it's just modern football. Um, it was a little bit of a storm in a teacup. It, it caused quite a few roar on among some of aspects of the let's say old guard of the Russian media uh, during the course of the games. And that's why Zhikia addressed it. He was he was approached the question again, and I'm also not really that bothered by it. Uh, lots lots of sides nowadays have what's called a leadership group. My own team, for example, Sunderland, we have a team captain, vice captain, and then four other players who are members of the leadership group, and they're well respected, more experienced pros amongst quite a young team, and their job is to collectively be a link between the staff and the players. And I think having that link is is more important than having one man who he is the captain. 
it's a very much an antiquated way of thinking, in my opinion. That obviously, if you've got someone like Igor Akinfeev, he is the de facto captain anyway. It's it's a no brainer. But when you've got a little bit more of a, a mixed group of players from different parts of like different clubs, like you've got three or four Spartak players, three or four local, three or four Zenit. It's good to have more than one to help them mesh. Uh, there's the famous information about the England's golden generation in quotation marks where the prodigiously talented group of players who just simply couldn't play together because of their own internal divisions. Perhaps they would have been better suited to have a leadership group rather than just one man who's captain. Um, I don't think it matters anymore. I do think you do. I think it was a little bit of a storm in a teacup that was created by some of the older guard. Richard, what's your thoughts just before we move on to the last game? Yeah, I just want to come in there and say I agree with both of you guys. I think like the captain's role now in international and even to an extent in club football is still important, but nowhere near as much as you know what it used to be. Um, so yeah, I, I do agree with those with those comments. Um, maybe you know there's a couple of things you can hypothesize about about what Carpine did with the the three captains. Maybe he's auditioning it around, and maybe after a while he will decide on a permanent captain. Um, or maybe you know he's going to continue doing this um, this rotation um, of the captain's armband for, for for games. I personally think if if you were going to give it permanently to somebody, I probably I probably will give it to Georgi Jakia, um, just on the basis that Russia in this set of matches were quite resolute at the back, especially in the Cyprus and um, and Croatia games. So you know when a captain from the back can see it all, see the pitch in front of him. So I quite I'm not. I'm okay with the idea of a centre half being captain, someone like Shakira or Deveev. But yeah, I do agree with you on the whole that I think people are making a storm out of a teacup out of it. It's not not a huge deal. Um, you know, and if it keeps like I say, if it keeps all the squad harmonious, um, and they all feel an equal sense of responsibility and share it, then that, that's not a bad thing. But yeah, there's a few hypotheses you can think of, but like I say I think the reaction to it in some quarters has been a bit OTT. Uh, but I think if you are going to give it to someone, I'd yeah. probably prefer it Deveev or um, or Shakia because, like I said, they can see the whole game out from the back. Yeah, certainly. I remember, well, not having a captain. I mean, I think a lot of these, ironically, older guard may have short memories because a lot not having a particular captain is very much a an old Soviet sort of tradition. Um, and Anatoly... Tarasov, I mean, this is hockey, not football, but they were the same sporting societies. He, his captain for years and years during like the the Miracle and Ice period, um, was was it Vyacheslav Fitisov, and he was the captain on the ice. But it, the, the responsibility was shared around. It wasn't just one man. Um, Nikolai Staritsyn, when he was at Spartak, he was. Spartak's captain, like he was, he was listed as the captain, the man in charge. Obviously, he is like Mister Spartak, so it's not necessarily surprising in the least. But there's an interesting. I remember reading his uh, biography, uh, Staritsyn's biography in particular, and when he discussed being captain, um, he said that uh, during a time when teams had no coaches, the captain did everything. Uh, he said, "I was 23 years old playing as the captain." Ivan Artemyev joined from Dynamo. Pavel Kanunikov was expected to succeed him, but he refused. I was then next in succession. As captain, and he continued going to say that as captain, I always represented my team and I was proud of being do- doing so, aware of my needs, asking my teammates' needs, asking their employers to let them off work early to go to training, solving their family issues, finding their money for them in case of financial troubles. The most difficult thing of all was determining the starting eleven. So this is the weird weirdest part is that this is like back in like the four the thirties and so on. They then decided the starting eleven, the captain. But you see, he, he says that ma- the majority of the role is actually like a caring point, like from a like a, a father figure, like a leadership role off the pitch, not necessarily on the pitch. And he actually then goes on to say that uh, we're all comrades, we're equal to the field, we're all there together, we all work together on the pitch. And he was he basically goes on to discuss how being a captain is more so about the authority and the respect off the pitch, not necessarily on it. Off the pitch, they all probably look up to certain players who do things for others, especially some of the younger lads. Like you'll have say when um so, uh, say if Nailum Yarov as ever in the national team, he looked to Shakia, he's his team captain anyway, his club captain. So it's more so about the role of it. And this is going back to 
90 years ago now, one of the most famous men in Soviet footballing history didn't was a captain, didn't like the powers that he was then given. He believed that they should have been more equal. Um, of course, there is a caveat that, that this, this biography was released during the Soviet Union before Glasnost and before the Palestroika, so very much take it with a pinch of salt um, with the censorship that was going on before that period, of course, because his views are, are kind of skewed to match the political system. But anyway, the, it's written evidence of a man who is one of the biggest names in Soviet footballing history, not really seeing the position as a captain while respecting it and being thankful for having it, not seeing is that massively important on the pitch. And I think that kind of says it all. But we'll after that little tangent, we'll move on. And the last game was back at the Otkritia Arena in Moscow, and Russia beat Malta 2-0. David, what were your thoughts on that one? It was uh, not great, really. Uh, I remember when Russia played Malta in Malta, um, it was also not a great performance. They won 3-1. They actually can obviously be conceded to Malta. Um, and it wasn't great. You know, they got a very early lead. Smolov, who capitalised on some very poor... Uh, Defending, just a, a light, uh, an under-hit back pass, and he just managed to sneak in. But um, Russia then had their own dodgy defending. You know, Guillermo was was the goalkeeper again, as you said. Um, Kuzyaev was playing as one of the full-backs. We had Ostipenko in there for his debut because Jiki had taken a little knock uh, against Cyprus, uh, and Diveyev was there. Um, and Kuzyaev... Didn't have a great game, despite, I thought, against Croatia, he was probably the best player um, on the pitch. Um, he, he almost resulted in a, in a couple of goals, as I recall, from dodgy back passes to Guillerme. Guillerme also didn't have the greatest of games, I didn't think. He made a couple of saves, which he basically palmed straight to Maltese players, um, and it was only then... Uh, the centre-halves tidying up. The two centre-halves before were, were fine. Diveyev had a really good international break. And I've seen uh, pieces written about him since, saying you know, he is you know, the future defender of, of Russia. You know, For a long time, he'll be in there, which you know I think is a fair case. Um, and then, yeah, second half, you know, it just was, wasn't great. I mean, first half wasn't great. Um, so Haryan just could not get into the game. He, he was. There was at least two occasions where he was the man over on the left. Russia were, were pushing forward with strong numbers, and he was free on the left. And on either occasion, did the teammate lay it off to him, and it, at which point he would have had a free shot on goal from inside the penalty box. Both times, his teammate tried to take it on or picked a different pass. Um, and that's when you sort of knew it wasn't going to be his day. You know, there was there was two chances there where he could have scored, and on either occasion, did he did he get the ball? Um, but no, it, it wasn't a great fixture. It wasn't a great game. Um, you know, they didn't really create much in the second half. And then they got a, a very late penalty from handball. You know, it was a handball under the new rulers. Um, and, it, and it was scored and that was that. You know, they did enough to, you know, the only way that Malta almost scored two or three times was because of Russia's own mistakes. You know, the only chances that Malta really had, other than a couple of long shots, were from bad back passes or when someone had made a mistake at the back. So, um, yeah, definitely the worst of the three fixtures. Um, you know, as we'd said, um, disappointed to see Guillermo start against a team like Malta, and then he didn't exactly back it up with a, with a great performance. Um, you know, uh, the, the the sources say that it's Kafanov who's picking the goalkeeper who starts rather than Karpin. So um, Kafanov obviously is that is the goalkeeping coach who worked with Berdiev for a while, went to Rostov with him, and I think now has become sort of part of Karpin's group uh, for the national team. So yeah, all those goalkeepers who got called up. Obviously, Pesukov was was uh, dropped from the squad after the Croatia game. Munyov. Dupin and Maximenko then sat on the bench for the remaining two games, uh, rotating between them. But yeah, it would have been good to see one of those guys play. Um, Ossipenko, I thought, was fine in his debut. Uh, Jemal Adinov, I thought, was good in his in his cameos in both games that he came off the bench. 
uh, as well. You know, as to be expected, considering how well he's playing uh, for for his club. So, um, you know, it, but it was two must-win games, especially after you know the decent, decent. You know, it was a decent draw against Croatia. I know, you know, you would say a nil-nil draw against Croatia is not great, but um, I think Croatia probably are the better team, and the, Russia did well to to keep them at bay. You know, it was big tactical risks, and, and they did it. But they they needed them to go out and get these two wins. Right, you know, even if they weren't convincing, they still got the wins, which is the the important thing. You know, they're still tied at the top of the group with with Croatia. There was a point I think uh, one of the teams. I think it was the second game. Croatia got a very late winner in their second match against either Slovakia or Slovenia. I can't remember. I think it's Slovakia. They, they scored quite a late winner. Um, you know, if there was a draw there, that would put Russia clear at the top, which would have been very handy. But um, you know, it looks like they're going to be okay at the top of the table. The next, the next group of internationals, which I presume we'll see them play, uh, we'll see them play Slovakia or Slovenia again. Will we'll be tricky ones because obviously they're in the mid-range games you know they've already lost to Slovakia once in the group stage uh, in the first round so that'll be uh, those will be the two big fixtures because they're not pushover games but they're still games you, they, you know, Russia would be expected to win so the next international break if those are the fixtures I haven't looked ahead to see which which fixtures are in the next international break those will be the really important ones but so for this break you know I'd sort of give the overall break a 7 out of 10 I think they started with an eight, stuck with a seven, and then the last game was like a five or a six. But de- decent overall. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was not enthused by the Malta game. I thought it was a little bit, a little bit of a drab performance, personally. Um, a little bit of quality, kind of not, not rescued Russia because that's unfair to say. They went there, they got the victory. That's all that matters. At the end of the day, well, and the qualifier is, is the three points, but. It was just quite insipid and uninspiring. Richard, any final thoughts on the on the Malta match before we do move on to the under twenty ones? Yeah, just very quickly on the international break as a whole. I think, yeah, I think that that mark from David's quite fair. Probably a seven out of ten. You would have given it. Um, I actually think the fixtures of and just to come in there on the October international break, Russia will play uh, Slovakia at home first, and then I think it's Slovenia away. So those are the next two games, and then the, in the final international break in November, it's. Cyprus at home and Croatia away. Croatia away is the final game of the qualifying campaign. Um, so I actually think the fixtures have fallen okay for Carpine, having taken charge of the, the national team. You know, Croatia at home first, not easy, but at least it's a test. It's straight into straight into the competitive environment, international football, you know, no easy introduction. You've got to get it right from the start. And I think, you know, Russia got it right there. Then the next two games after that in Cyprus and Malta, two games where they had to win, but more of a gentler introduction. I think now that he's had three games with this team, the October break is where it starts stepping up a bit intensity with, you know, Slovakia at home and um, Slovenia away. So, but by then he should be a bit more familiar with things. And then the final test, the toughest test of all will come away against Croatia at the Maximir Stadium in November. So I actually think the fixtures have fallen all right for Carpine in terms of order. Um, yeah, crucial thing is, I think, minimum was seven points for this international break and they've got it. So, could have been slightly better if they managed to win against Croatia or had they been a bit more clinical against maybe Malta and got a bigger margin of victory. So, then they would have been top at the moment on goal difference. But, yeah, overall, a decent international break. Uh, but there's tougher tests ahead to come. The one thing that I was glad to see was Konstantin Chukarvin also made his Full debut for the national team. Uh, he's been a regular fixture for both the under twenty uh, Dinamo and the under twenty ones in the last couple of years, and it was it was great to see him come on. Uh, and to to use that as a little quick of a bit of a segue, the under twenty ones also played during the international break. Uh, one in which one of the games they defeated Malta six 0 with quite a dominant performance. David, yeah, it was quite a funny one actually. They played Malta in in Moscow or in in Humki. On the same night that the senior team were also playing Malta in Moscow, so I presume Maltese uh, cut costs and flew out together for that one. Um, yeah, they played. They played two fixtures, the under twenty ones. Um, you know, we we I think we discussed the squad maybe last time out because it was announced quite a while ago, and obviously there was a few players we got in there with, with some good form. Um, they went out against Spain in the first fixture away. Um, he lined up with like a a five three two. And you had Karapuzov playing up front with with Agalarov, um, 
Russia actually took the lead in that one, and it was it was a uh, defensive error, which uh, one of the Spain defenders fizzed the back pass at his keeper, and the keeper didn't control it very well. Um, uh, and someone nipped in, and Ag- Aguilarov eventually tapped it in for a for a one 0 lead with some. Um, Spanish team, which I, I was looking through the, the lineup and I didn't know too many of the names. So I was thinking, you know, how strong a team is this? I was looking at some of the clubs they were playing for. Um, I didn't see if they were on loan from bigger teams, but a lot of them were playing for smaller, you know, lower league, league teams or um, second division teams. So I was thinking on paper, it's it's not a strong one, 21 squad, but um, they were, you know, they played as Spain. You would expect Spain to play. Um, I think Russia had about 20 odd. 20, mid twenties possession um, overall. Spain, you know, Spain really dominated the proceedings. Uh, but it was it was the early second half. I think they went in. Yeah, they went in at one or at half time. But early second half, uh, Spain scored a pot shot very quickly in the second half, which took a big deflection off um, off one of the defenders. I think it was Khotuliev uh, in, in defence. It took a big big flick of his foot. And uh, wrong-footed Budachov in goal, and they scored again very quickly after that. And then that was that was game over. Russia then had the bit of the ball, but couldn't really create much. Um, Agalarov, the keeper, actually made a couple of very good saves to stop Agalarov scoring again. Um, and then yeah, it was Jeremy Pino actually from from Villarreal was very good uh, against against Russia in that game. I think he got two goals and maybe two assists. Um, he he was but he was really good. Um, and then they, they came back and played Malta, uh, lined up with a 4-3-3 in this one. And uh, it was good to see. So the, the player who I was interested to see in both fixtures was uh, Edgar Svitian, who plays out for Levante. Uh, because he went out and moved to Levante when he was really young, sort of. None of us are offended. I'd, I'd certainly never seen him before. I don't imagine any of us had because he'd never played any senior football in Russia. And he'd been in, he's been in Spain for a few years now. But um, he was he was good. He came on against Spain actually as well. But he was he was very good in both occasions. Um, interesting left-footed player uh, playing off the right in both times. Good good dribbler. Seems to have good vision. Um, and he uh, he got an assist in in the second game against Malta, which as you said they they won six 0 It was very very dominant as you as you might expect. I think they had they had at least eighty possession and they had 30 shots plus. Um, Agalarov got two goals and an assist. Daniel Klusevich from Austin Tula got a couple of goals. He's, he's started the season well for, for his club as well. And then uh, Kirill Bojanov and Kirill Kravtsov from Frontenay uh, also scored. Um, so it was it was good. You know, the, the squad, when you look at it, like the lineup, the midfield against the Malta was Umyarov, Krutsev and Marijishvili. Uh, which is, you know, that's three very good midfielders right in there, um, and yeah, they, it was a, it was a good international break. You know, they did get battered by Spain. I think it all just fell apart when they when they conceded that second goal. Um, but a good break, obviously. Players were missing. Siljanov, you, you'd expect he he dropped out because of injury. As did Chernikov from Krasnodar uh, and Kovsov from Krasnodar also missed the squad. But Agalarov was was the highlight, really. You know, he's. He's now got eight goals and two assists in uh, in eight appearances this season for, for club and country. Um, so he's really he's really on a hot streak, and you know I'll probably be looking to get him in my fantasy team uh, this week, uh, depending on the fixtures because he, he's on form and um, you know he's carried it on for for his country as well. You know a lot of these guys are you know because it's the new generation. These are all guys who are only making their first some of their first appearances at this level. Uh, and they're missing out on guys like Zakarian and Tukavin. You know, Tukavin, both of those two only made their debut for the under-21s in March. And they're already in the senior squad. And Maxim Mukin bypassed the under-21s altogether. He never played for the under-21s at all. But those three are all eligible and still could play in the team if they wanted. Uh, long-term, when they're missing uh, Pavel Maslov as well, he's eligible for the under-21s. But obviously, we know he's out injured for, what, a good few months now, right? Um uh, so he'll undoubtedly come in because they are lacking a bit of depth at the back. You know, you've got Kamaev and Kutitsky as the backup centre-halves who don't have a lot of experience. But Prokin and Litvinov are two very good centre-halves and Kotuliev was decent, I thought, against Spain as well. 
but uh, bring Maslow back, back in there. And uh, granted, he he was uh, at fault in the under-21 Euros back in March, gave away a couple of penalties, but um, he's still a good defender and will add to the depth there, which is which is needed. But yeah, solid, solid and uh, it's going to be nice to watch this group carry on, obviously, uh, in the future. It's an interesting composition of who a lot of these players play for. If you take the Malta game, for example, uh, I think it was you, David, even on the RFN, tweeted mm-hmm. out that yep. it was two Arsenal players, two Spartak, and then a various re- yeah. c- cluster from Baltica, Sochi, Himki, Ufa, Levante in Spain, Loco and Krilia. Okay. Uh, should we be worried that there's not the hugest, uh, a large amount of representation from the bigger clubs, such as, I mean, there's not a single Zenit player on that entire side? Granted, Prokin is a Zenit Academy player. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the listing of the clubs there is also their, who they're currently playing for. So, obviously, um, Prokin is a Rostov player, but he's on loan at Sochi. Uh, Stepanov's a Rubin player, but he's on loan at Arsenal. Um, things like that. Uh, Zenit had a couple of players in the squad, Kravtsov and Khotuyev. Kravtsov got um, at least 50, 60 minutes in the in one of the earlier games in the season for the senior team when Ozdoyev went off injured. So they're, they're both constantly on the bench for the senior team, but we know Zenit historically aren't great with giving their young players chances. Um, so that is no huge surprise. Um, the Russians are under-21s in the last few years. We've seen them be picking players who are playing senior football rather than youth football. So a lot of these guys, you know, there's two Kuban players there who are both on loan. Klimov and Kamayev, uh, but you know, Stepanov's on Arsenal, uh, Ignatov's on the edge of the Sparta team, who else is on loan? Perutsev is on loan at Krilia. Uh, you know, there's various other loanees there who are all players who have come from, you know, the bigger, bigger academies. But uh, it seems at the moment that maybe it's the Dinamo sort of system, which is the one that's bearing the most fruits. Um, Obviously, we've had Tukar and Zaharian uh, in this squad. They had Kutitsky and Budachev, and below that, they've got Gladyshev as well coming through for, for the under-18s, who has been in the senior squad quite a few times this season. So, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting mix. And actually, when you when you think about it, I started thinking about it, and then I thought, well, who's in the England under-21 squad? And I, I didn't look, but I had a quick think, and I thought, well, a lot of these guys, like Mark... Uh, Gay Gui, I don't know how to say his surname, but he's the guy who just joined <laughs> Palace, right? Um, he's the captain, and I thought, well, if he's the captain, and I'm thinking of all these other young English players like Conor Gallagher and things like that, I'm thinking, well, a lot of these guys don't play for the big teams, so maybe this isn't too out of the ordinary. Like the Spain under 21 squad didn't have many players from the big teams. Um, but do we want our players, you know, if we've got young players playing for the big teams? Would they be under 21 level? You know, the only one arguably who's playing regularly for a big team in this squad is, is Umyarov. And even he's not full regular. Maradishvili, Umyarov are sort of the two leaders from the big teams who are in this under 21 squad. Um, you know, teams, guys who are playing more regularly for, for their clubs. Obviously, Maradishvili's just uh, joined Loco from, from Siska. But the rest of them who are at the big clubs in this squad, you know, you Litvinov, um, who else was there from Spartak in the squad? There was someone else. Ignatov, they're, you know, they're in the first team fold, but they aren't playing regularly. Um, but the players who are young enough and who are playing regularly for the bigger teams, which isn't many, but if we look at, say, Zakaria, Mukin, and Zukavin, they're, they're being acknowledged by the senior team. So is that something we want? I think yes, when you look at, you know, England calling up a lot of younger players, you know, Bellingham and uh, Greenwood going straight to the senior team there, for example, when they're all, you know, Saka as well. I think they all three of those would be eligible for our under-21s, but they're all going to the senior team. So I think if they're ready, fine, stick them in your seniors. The, the under-21s is more of a, a proving ground for these guys um, to to see if they're going to be ready. Um, see, COVID extended the the deadline for the last group and it gave them a year to to prepare them for the senior team obviously we've seen a few of them go on to to get into the senior squad um but you know it's it's a good group you know i'd say at least 70 percent are playing regularly in the top flight and almost the whole squad are therefore other than the two abroad guys are playing regularly in the top two divisions so um yeah it's 
it's not such a bad thing. And I think we talked about it briefly, and I won't go into it, but a lot of these guys have, have come through as limit chicks as well in the last couple of years. So that rule seemingly bearing fruits already in its, with its, you know, and it's only two years old. So, yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned Kirill Kraftsov, and he has somewhat been fast-tracked by Zenit of late. I think he only signed his professional contract, what was it, in... In the winter break, just before the return to football in 2021, him and and he's he obviously was fast tracked from the youth league from the under 19s, uh, Konstantin Zirianov's team into Zenit two in the PFL quite quickly, and then again this year into the Nash, into both the under 21s for Russia and Zenit's first team, even though he's not necessarily even though he's not started for them yet, of course, but hopefully he's going to be highly rated because there's been a, quite a a lot of youngsters who have been given a chance at Zenit of late, I mean, and are no, are no longer there anymore. Um, Shamkin, Danila Prokin, Leon Masayev are just three off the top of my head that I can mention right now who are all players who are within the sort of 2000 and beyond cohort of graduates who were given the debuts for the first team and have not been able to follow on from that. Whether that's an issue with Zenit Academy in general I'm not quite sure. More so, I would say, is what you said, is there's not a pathway to the first team for a lot of these players. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's mad, really. Like, Zenit's bench this season has been 70% young players. Um, you know, you've Kotuliev and Kravtsov, as you said, both in this in, in the uh, under-21 squad. And then uh, Odoyevsky is regularly on the bench with uh, Kuznetsov, and they both are in the under-18 squad. Uh, you know, Zenit's depth is sort of... Either the squad depth's not there and we're not realising it, or they are just starting to include more young players on the bench. Um, I think the the Youth Football League, the YFL, um, is where Kuznetsov had his, his breakthrough. And during preseason, they used Belokhanov as well, who um, he was in the YFL too and scored an outrageous amount of goals. And he was used for the senior team in preseason a bit uh, and is now with Zenit 2 this season um, in the PFL or Feniel 2, as it's now called. Um, so the YFLs, it's really starting to also like bear fruits. I saw a, uh, a tweet or an Instagram post the other day with like a list of YFL players who are already in the Premier League, and you know it's it's a big list of you know obviously the big two are Zakarian and Tukarvin. Both those guys had their breakthrough in the YFL when it in its first season. Sukhomlinov from Rostov similarly uh, playing semi regularly for Rostov this season was from the YFL. Budachov. From Dinamo, I mean, a lot of the guys at Dinamo Gladyshev as well. Um, so the YFL, you know, Russia's or the the RFU's changes to, to the youth football system in Russia with the limit chip rule and the introduction of the YFL, which you know the YFL did semi exist already, but it's it's been made into a more regulated and competitive league and taken more seriously and. The, the emergence of guys like Tukarvin and Zaharian are only going to encourage other clubs to look at their own youth systems. Um, Rostov, for example, uh, Melikin from Rostov started um, for the club. He's the, he's the youngest player to start in the league this season. He's 17 years old still. Played 90 minutes at centre-half for Rostov um, yeah, the last game before the international break. Langovic also... Uh, played a couple of fixtures off the bench for them this season. Those guys are both from the YFL too. Um, so it's, it is a trend that we're seeing already a little bit of clubs seeing Zakarians and you know, Tukarvins and thinking, well, who have we got? You know, who can we use from our, our youth team? Um, you know, not all of these clubs have a team in the YFL. The YFL's built up a lot of a lot of academies. Sukhol Minov actually was from the Saturn Academy, not Rostov, but signed with Rostov afterwards. So um, it's being taken more seriously, and I think you know the the cases of, as I say, Zakarian will will only encourage more clubs to to look that direction, and it's a trend that can only improve Russian football in the long term. I think. Yeah, without a doubt, we've been. RFN in general for years calling for an increased use and better support of the academy system within the country because the the old society system that the Soviets had was never really replaced. It was just kind of renamed. Um, and the academies never shot up until the last 10 years. It, it, it was like a, 
a, a deluge for 20 years where there was just no real proper academy football created in the country. It was all the two sides and they would rather keep it within their own society rather than actually go out and outwardly scout and look for an academy. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. It can only be good for the long, both the short and long term in, in the nation of, of for both domestic and international football. But if we do move on now to the last topic of the day, and it's going to be a brief transfer window summary of recent events and an overall recap. So to start, I'll quickly mention that financially, it's been quite a hit this this summer window, despite what we'll get into a large, higher increased income from recent years and and more players moving to the elite in quotation mark leagues in Europe, especially with, was it three in the end, moving to the RPL directly. Despite that, only Siska, Ahmat and Ahmat and Rostov have actually uh, made <laughs> made a profit during the summer. Um, different, uh, Siska, actually, that makes a nice difference because they're, their profit was high, obviously, largely thanks to the sale of Lasic. And this is the first time in three, four years, four years that they've actually made any form of profit in a window. Um, Loco and obviously the higher spenders, they've lost 26 million euros during the course of the window as well. Uh, some of the most expensive arrivals were, of course, John Cordoba for, to Krasnodar, Claudinho to Zenit and Denis Makarov to Dinamo. Um, there's actually three Russians in the top 10 of the most expensive arrivals, including Makarov, Konstantin Mar- Maradashvili, and Nea Teknizian. So I must admit a little bit surprised that those three are in there, and I think it does owe largely to the overinflation of Russian prices, Russian players' prices due to the foreign limit. But anyway, David, would you like to give a quick summary of of the deadline days, the various European and Russian deadline day, and some of the the latest moves in the market. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, with the with the window closing uh, in the UK uh, earlier than in, it did, well, say UK in Europe earlier than in Russia, um, we saw if we go uh, slightly further back, we saw Cassiera, Matteo Cassiera joined Sochi from from Belenenses in Portugal. Uh, Rubin spent another seven million on Anders Dreyer from Mitchelland. Uh, we finally saw Matthias Norman get his move. Uh, RFN had had that one covered for um, at least a month before, and uh, he got his loan move to Norwich um, with the option to, to buy. Um, good move for him, and you know a nice recognition of the the RPL having some good players. Uh, Siska ditched Adolfo Geich again. He's gone off to Huesca in the Spanish second tier. Uh, as deadline day then came in, we saw two big outgoings, both to West Ham. Uh, Nikola Vlasic, which had long been rumoured that he was going to go. Uh, it was obviously only late on that West Ham were the team that emerged. Um, that's, I think, €30 million Euros plus up to €6 million in bonuses. So big old fee. And then Alex Kral uh, went on loan to West Ham um, with the obligation to buy if he plays a certain amount of minutes, that amount not being known. So that was that was the big deadline day moves on the outgoings. Uh, Loco did some business on the last couple of days, bringing in players. They brought in Giorano Kirk from Utrecht, and uh, we finally got Tino Anjorin uh, joining on loan from Chelsea with the option to buy um, from January onwards for a hefty 17 million fee, and obviously since we, we've seen that they've unretired Dimitri Loskov's number 10 and giving it to him. So no pressure on, on Tino, but, uh, you know, another Englishman in, in the RPL, the first one since David Bentley. Uh, then obviously the European window closed. It was all just, you know, what what players would would Russian clubs pick up. And we, we didn't see anything too too big, too fancy. The last big one was Maradishvili, as you said, who uh, swapped Siska for Loco. Uh, you know they've essentially done a done a swap. Uh, you know they've essentially swapped Mukin for for uh, for Maradishvili. I don't know really who's the team who's come better off. I, I personally prefer Maradishvili at least. Um, and then the, the the last biggish moves were were Mirzov going on loan from Spartak to Himki, where I'm sure he'll again do well, and then Spartak will give him another go at the start of next season. Uh, 
Senin Sebai went off to Akhmat from Kimki. And then the, the more surprising last minute move was was Shappy. Um, he signed a new deal with Krasnodar and then went on loan to uh, Giresunspor in Turkey, who are currently bottom of the league with zero points after three games. So um, nice to see him go abroad. Obviously, we're always backing Russian players to go abroad. Turkey, not necessarily the, the best league. Um, and I think for a player like Shappy, who thrives off chance creation, high volume of chance creation, um, typically... A team that's bottom of the league after three games, not the best idea. Um, but then I thought back and remembered the game against Porto where he scored two goals out of nothing. Um, and I was like, okay, let's let's give him the benefit. You know, He's obviously happy to go and get some football. He needs the football. You know, He wasn't getting regular games for Krasnodar. So um, he that was the last the last move to go through was uh, Shappi going off to Turkey on loan. So um, yeah, that was sort of a summary of the last couple of couple of weeks i suppose i'm gonna i'm gonna potentially sound a little bit gammony here maybe not gammony but angry or like weird like is it just me or is unretiring a number one of the most bizarre things you'll ever hear i i know obviously loskov is is one of the the assistants at Loco, and and it was it was like a gift. It was him saying, "Ah, here's my number. You're worth it. Here's it's a gift from me to you. I'm retiring it myself." Like it wasn't like disrespect to Loskov in any way. Loskov himself wanted this to happen. He directly asked for it to happen. But is it just a bit odd that they've retired a number for a player who's not dead, and then re- unretired the number in general? I, I, if anyone's ever heard of any team. In any sport, unretiring a number, I mean, get in touch with, mm. again on Twitter because I've never seen that before anywhere. I don't know about unretiring. I mean, retiring a number for a club legend. I, I know there are some teams who have done it. Um, the my more gammony stance would be when Birmingham retired the number for Jude Bellingham. <laughs> um, After one go down that, um, uh, <laughs> but you know, I don't mind clubs retiring a number for their, you know, for a star player. You know, it's it, you know, it's a lot of pressure. If, you know, let's just, if we just talk about the, the number fourteen for Arsenal, I've always thought that was huge pressure on anyone who would come in and wear that. You know, Theo Walcott originally and and Aubameyang uh, now after Thierry Henry, um, it's just not the same. Not the same, but. Uh, you know, it's it. I think it is a bit of pressure, but maybe it was part of the deal to to convince Andrew to come over. So okay, we'll give you the number ten. Show you how much we mean to you. You mean you mean to us. I think it's partly because I'm I'm just part of, part of a footballing fan base who are particularly averse to to numbers because of a certain club up the road who who worship God like a famous the, the famous number nine. Um, in a in a joke and reference that probably only Dave from FC Zenit and Mauritius would <laughs> only understand. So Dave, if you're listening, you know exactly what I mean. But yeah, I just could not care less about shirt numbers. I do not care in the slightest if someone's got nine and ninety nine or who's retiring what or retiring it. But it's just a bit weird. Um, I also did see last month that not necessarily transfer related, but a little a little fun aside and to make every listener in the entire Russian footballing world feel very, very old. But uh, Zenit legend Danny, I think it's fair to call him, to call him a legend, um, his twin sons, Bernardo and Francisco Gomez, signed their first professional contracts with the Portuguese team, I think it was. Um, so that just makes everyone feel, I think, quite old and quite depressed. But uh, Richard, would you like to summarize the window in general maybe what clubs you thought have had the best windows who's maybe had a, a more elite a, a less successful one during the course yeah certainly james um i would probably say for best business overall i'd probably say it's locomotive you know i mean they're the high spenders in the league um i guess a big spending window like that is 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 a double-edged sword in a way it's a good thing that the um, ranik's project in Arja de Arena is being backed. However, it's definitely going to increase the pressure on Marco Nikolic. Now they they probably have to do a title challenge this season right to the end with the amount of money that they've spent. Um, obviously, some of the players that have come in, you know, have a high reputation. You know, Giano Girano Kirk comes in from the Netherlands from Utrecht. Uh, I think he got to double figures for goals in nineteen twenty. I think it was ten goals and eight eight assists in twenty four games, which is a good record for you know a normally a 
upper mid-table um, Eredivisie club. He comes with a high reputation. Then you've got Tin Yedvai, uh, the two guys they got from Saskar, Tekniziana and Maradashvili. Um, as we've just mentioned, Tino Anjur in there. I was reading that Athletic article about his move to um, to Lokomotiv on loan from Chelsea and how just how much persuasion they did to, to get him. Um, a, a Zoom call with Ranić, I think I recall reading about, which obviously shows this guy must be very highly rated at Chelsea. So um, it's going to be it's going to be really intriguing to see how he gets on. Um, so yeah, it, um, big spending and it comes with a lot of um, expectation. But you know, Lokomotiv do have a very good squad now with depth. Um, I'd also say Sochi have had a good window. You know, I, I've been impressed with. Both Rodrigo and Matteo Barac. Uh, so special shout out to them. Impressed with Rodrigo and Matteo Barac at the back. I think they've both been good signings. Both free transfers from um, Gilles Vicente and uh, Rapid Vienna. Um, I think Angban will be, become a quite a good signing for them too when he gets into the team um, and plays frequently. He's been recently been played a bit more frequently. Obviously, he needed a bit of settling time, but you know, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do. I'm beginning to wonder whether Matteo Cassiera is the striker that they needed in the Conference League qualification rounds, you know, because we've 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 criticised um, uh, Juganzic up front. So um, hopefully this is this is a striker now which can, you know, convert more of those chances, link up better with the attacking midfield and the playmaking options like the Boa. Hopefully he's the striker now who can really take Sochi on because they could once again be up there this season if Cassiera. Um, pre- proves to be the striker that they've been missing. I think he got double figures last season in the Portuguese Liga Primeira for uh, Belenense. So I think they're mid-table side, lower mid-table. So that's that's a decent record for a modest-sized club like that. Um, yeah, I think Dinamo and Rubin are good, good windows too. Obviously, Rubin have kept all the feature. They've got two wingers in Andrea and uh, Haksibanovic. Uh, Dinamo, Fabian Balbuena on a free is a good piece of business. Laxalt has been good so far at left back. Uh, they've got Makarov. They've spent quite a bit of money on him. So there's three good windows there. I would say in terms of losers, the obvious candidate really is Spartak. Um, I think Alex Kraus' loss is a huge blow because they were quoted up on the foreign limit. They haven't really been able to bring in anybody. Obviously, they did bring in Maximilio. Well, not they brought in Maximiliano um, Coffrey from um, St. Croydon uh, in the Belgian league. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see where they use him now because obviously they've still got Tony G- uh, Samuel Gigo and we all thought, uh, Tony Gigo is his brother, we got Samuel Gigo, we all thought that um, he was um, going to leave. We all thought Gigo was going to go and Corfrey was going to be his replacement. But um, it, it, it might be it might be a case now that Spartak go to a back three with Corfrey as a right-sided centre-back. Maybe try and go back to the formation they used last season with, you know, um, Jorrit Hendricks and Zobdin in midfield too, and then you have Promes and Larson behind Ponce or Sobolev with um, Ayrton and Moses as wing backs. So it'll be fascinating to see how Corfrey's signing um, changes Spartak's tactics, formation. Obviously, it's been a very difficult start for them on the Rui Vittori, a coach under pressure, team under pressure. So we'll have to see how Corfrey does. I'd say Ural have not had a great window either, not a huge amount of business, not really very many players recognisable players, players of quality that have come through the door. They're already struggling. They're already on their second manager. They've brought in um, Igor Shalimov to replace um, Yuri Matveev and it looked pretty grim against um, Dinamo. They look, they look terrible under um, Shalimov. So I think they're going to struggle this season too. So yeah, I'd say that's an overall um, overall judgment of the window. I'd say um, some sides at the bottom have brought in some interesting players. You know, Nishni have had a very busy window actually as well. I think some of their signings might give them a chance to stay up. They've had a good start. I'd say out of all the bottom clubs initially, you've had one of the more positive windows. Um, Arsenal Tula as well have had a good window. So, so yeah, I'd say that's a quick summary of it. So, probably the winners, probably Lokomotiv and Sochi. The losers, probably Spartak and Ural. I think Spartak are probably always be losers, just in general. David, any last words yourself? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't help but selfishly just think about Rubin. You know, we, we managed to keep Kravitz Scalia. Um, you know, the, the club came out and said that in the end they actually had no official offers for, for him. You know, there was lots of agent talk and lots of clubs, you know, come in and maybe inquired, but uh, there was no ever no official offers ever. Um, so obviously he stayed. Um, they've done well. They've got a nice attack. They brought in German and uh, Onuka on loan to to back up Despotovic so we don't have to carry on playing Kostyukov or even Ignatiev up front. Um, 
when Despotovic is out injured, although him and Kvaratskhelia are both back fit. You know, we, we really struggled without them both. Um, in order to, to skim through the foreigner limits, they, they ditched Darko Jevtic, they ditched Silvio Begic, uh, Mitsuki Saito. Um, there's only two senior centre-backs in the whole squad now, which is uh, Urimovic and uh, Talbi, um, because Begic, Gritsenko, Starfelt all went. Um, so I think I, I was surprised that they loaned out they loaned out Gritsenko last minute to Kuban. Uh, maybe he was the player he wanted to play football because he's just a backup for Rubin. But you know, he was a Russian centre half who can play at senior level in the RPL, um, and we now don't have a backup centre half. So I found that an odd move. I think they've done well. You know, it's a very threatening attack. Dreyer, uh, Haksabanovic, Kravitskelia, Despot, but at the back, once you, uh, all it takes is Uremovic or Talby to get an injury, and then. Uh, it's looking a bit thin unless they're playing to maybe use you know, Abel Gore in there as a centre-half. I don't know. But that, that's just my Ruben thoughts. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that Ruben didn't have a single offer for Kvitscher. Obviously, the hype that transpired during the international break that time perhaps didn't translate into anything but that. Um, to be honest, a lot of the the rumor that you would hear, like in, in the rumor mill in general, it kind of emanated quite a lot from Georgia and Georgian journalists. And sometimes that's one of two cases. It's either they do have a genuine source, probably in close to Kavicha's agent, or it's on the other half, on the other side of them trying to push something more than it's actually going to happen in. Lou with the agent and it did very much seem far more the latter everything came from the Georgian end it was far more from the Georgian end than it was actually from the Russian end which is very very rare considering just how much these a lot of the tabloids sporting press in Russia love sensationalism so I was a little bit <clears throat> skeptical about a lot of the Kvitscher rumors throughout the window but Good for Rubian that he's managed to stay for now. Um, good for the for us because we get to watch at least another potential season of him playing football. But I think it would have been good for the league for him to make a move now. Um, maybe not him. It, it could potentially have been a little bit too early. It depends upon, of course, the hypothetical club that he would have went to. But it's been overall a good window for Russian exports. Um, obviously, like you said, Richard Spartak are weaker without Kral, uh, without a shadow of a doubt. But with Kral and Falasic and Matthias Norman all making moves to the Premier League, um, Tino and Jorin coming in from Chelsea, proving uh, both of them prove that the RPL, to an extent, at least in terms of the transfer window, is a more attractive league. It's not just, hopefully we can try and fight off that opinion of 10, 15 years ago that a lot of people had away from Russia that they were only there for the money. Um, that's not true. They Hopefully the other, other European clubs can see it as a genuine destination for their own player development and also a good scouting option like what very much a lot of the RPL clubs really do see the Alsvenskan in Sweden and, and other Scandinavian leagues. Um, that can also only develop better. And I think for the longer term development of the league, hopefully the reputation's getting towards a better place than it was, say, five to ten years ago, where it was very much in the doldrums for quite a while. Um, and with that, we have reached the end of this week's episode. It is a little bit of a quieter weekend in terms of the RPL. Uh the biggest game is arguably the rivalry down south between Rostov and Krasnodar, and I think that's the last game of the weekend as well. Uh, as a little aside, we'll finish off by just quickly recapping the the uh, European draw uh, in the Champions League. You've got Zenit who paired up with Chelsea, Juve and Malmo, uh, and then in the Europa League, Loco up against Marseille, Lazio and Galatasaray with the crazy group of absolute nutter ultras and then Loco, which is basically um, families and Ilya Sokolov in the press box. And then the Europa League is Spartak with two of the favourites of the entire competition, Napoli and Leicester, 
and Legia Warsaw. Of course, Legia Warsaw, very good friends of uh, partisan Belgrade, and because of the troubles that went on 15 years ago between Spartak and Legia fans, this is no, it was uh, Legia, and because of Spartak's relationship with Lech Poznan, there's been troubles between Spartak and Legia fans before, so look out for some potential chaos off the pitch on that one, hopefully not. And speaking of Zenit, they're actually going to be without Malcolm and Claudinho, who were suspended by FIFA, um, basically because they were recalled by Zenit because they didn't want them to have to undergo a mandatory quarantine from their international fixtures. And thus, FIFA have decided to suspend them from a couple of Zenit's games, and that includes their game next midweek uh, away to Chelsea in the Champions League in the opening group game of the group stages. So couldn't have been at worse timing for Zenit, <laughs> considering they've got that Champions League game. But arguably, away to Chelsea is a little bit of a no-hope anyway. So maybe you'd rather have them for the two Malmo games and miss the Chelsea at Sanford Bridge because you can't imagine Zenit getting anything out of it anyway. But in my opinion, it is a quite ridiculous ruling. What if Zenit had said they were injured and just didn't even send them there in the first place? Like, what? how many clubs do every year? The sheer amount of clubs who re- recall their players and say that they're injured because they don't want them to leave the club in the middle of a packed season. Happens all the time. Maybe Zenit were a bit naive, but they aren't the only club, at least, to have been hit with a suspension. Um, I just think it's rank dreadful by FIFA. And considering everything that's going on in the world... In the COVID and all that, they should really be a little bit more flexible. But this is one of the most antiquated bodies in football, so let's let's not get unreasonable by expecting FIFA themselves to be reasonable. But anyway, this has been the Russian Football News Podcast. Goodbye for now. Веди его, беги, точнее его удар Но мяч берет ноги решительный вратарь Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечок Здесь нужны тренировка и воля Быстрота, увлечение, расчет